Thank you guys so much. I'm so honored to be here. Um, I just want to say you guys have been so kind to me ever since I walked through the doors, and that's just a great sign of a gracious church, and um, I'm just so glad to be here. Casey is a great guy, a great friend, and a good pastor. Often when I meet with him and talk with him, he talks about you guys, and so uh, if you if you don't already know how great of a pastor you have, I just want to be a reiteration and a reminder to you of just how great he is, and also your elder team, who I've gotten to meet a little bit this morning, has been really gracious, and so um, like John said, my name's Court, and um, my, my wife and my, my little one, I want to start with my, my son because I feel like that's a good buffer for you to like me better. He's, he's awesome. <laughs> he is great. My wife and I just finalized the adoption of our two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old now son uh, a couple of months ago, and so it was a two-year process for us, and we lived in Kyrgyzstan for 50 days. If you've never lived out of the country for 50 days, don't do it. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, we, we were in uh, kind of a Soviet country, uh, a developing nation, and we lived there to finalize the adoption of little Jonas Marley. And uh, I wanted to bring him here this morning, but my wife got a little bit sick, so maybe hopefully next week I can bring him so that it can break the ice between me and you, because he's greater than me. He's awesome. Uh, last week I got to listen to uh, Pastor Bryant's message on the missionary God, and, and I wanted to kind of ensure that, that even though your lead pastor's out, that there's some continuity with where you guys are headed and tracking in the scriptures. And so as I listened through his sermon, I'll, I'll be honest with you, first of all, Pastor Bryant is charismatic uh, in personality and uh, powerful in preaching. And so I'm listening to that, and I'm, in, and I'm thinking, I wonder what they're going to think about me when I get up there um, in light of how cool he is. I'm not as cool as him at all. Um, I want to be, but I'm white with red hair, red hair and it's so many strikes against me, okay? And so I'm, I'm working on a deficit here. Um, but, but with his sermon, the, the, the thing that I got from it the most was just the, the convicting word of why do I not want to join God on his missionary enterprise? And he used that missionary enterprise analogy with Star Trek, which I could never get away with, by the way, all right? If I said that to you right now, you would immediately write me off. But he got away with it. And he said, why, why don't we want to join God on this glorious enterprise of, of him being a missionary God? And, and that stood out to me. And so this morning, I want, to, I want to maybe try to spend some time answering that question. Why is it that we struggle at times joining God on his missionary endeavor to redeem a lost and dying world? Uh, the theme of my sermon this morning is uh, gripped by grace. And I just have one line, and then, and then I'm going to read the scripture and we'll pray some. Uh, the theme of the sermon is this, the greatest messengers of grace are those who have been greatly marked by grace. I'll say that again. The greatest messengers of grace are those who have been greatly marked by grace. And if you wouldn't mind standing with me as we read God's word, I'd like to read out of Luke chapter number 5, verses 1 through 11. Forgive me for not already telling you to turn there while you were seated. Luke chapter number 5. Verses 1 through 11, I, I, I assume they'll probably have it up on the screen behind me too. But let me read, starting in verse 1. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had got out, gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, 
Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both of the boats so that they both began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that had been taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Fathers, thank you so much that for many of us in the room, you have, you have called and changed our lives forever. For those that may be here this morning just checking out what's going on, I pray, my God, that you would grip them by your grace even as you have myself. Thank you, my God, that your word stands true, that it stands the test of time, and that we can go there not just for pithy quotes, but we can go there for life. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're present with us and that you are not only willing and able, but active right now in opening the eyes of our hearts to see the scriptures, to hear your voice, and to be changed, transformed, convicted, compelled to be more like you, Jesus. Help us to repent faithfully, but not just repent, Lord. Help us to believe the gospel faithfully, Lord. And this morning, I pray we would leave here with new joy and a reminder of the fresh grace that you so readily offer us daily. God, I thank you and pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can't help but love this story. I can't help but love the characteristics that you gain from Jesus in this story. And I... I I can't help but read the Bible in the way that I read the Bible um, because God made me this way and I, I see it this way. And so for me, when I read stories like this, I can't help but see the comical nature that's kind of behind the lines of the story. And, it, and, and I want to kind of maybe help you see that. There's a comical way in which Jesus interacts with Peter and his, and his friends here, his partners, his business partners. And there's a comical way in which he weaves his way into their lives for the sake of extending grace to them. My first point is this, though. God has a way of weaving his way into our lives for the purposes of grace. If you're taking notes or if you're a note taker, that's your note. God has a way of weaving his way into our lives for the purpose of grace. In verse 1, it says, on one occasion, which already starts by, by making the sound as though it was a happenstance. But if you know the God of the Bible, then you know there's no such thing as happenstance. Like, if you read through the Gospels, there's this moment, there's these uh, these, these lines that are written in there from the writers of the Gospels, and they say things like, uh, Jesus decided to go this way around to Jericho. Let's be clear, friends. When Jesus decides to go a different way to Jericho, it's not because he's tired, he's taking a shortcut, it's not because traffic is bad. You know, it's not because the chariots were in his way or there was a detour that needed to be taken. It's not because his donkey got sick. Jesus takes the detours that he has been purposed by the Father to take. So this occasion right here is not just a simple occasion, but it's a sovereign moment of grace that God has chosen. He's about to weave his way into a man named Peter's life and James and John and change them forever. So this occasion is not happenstance. And it says, while the crowd's pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he's standing by the lake and he sees two boats and the fishermen are gone out of them and they're washing their nets. Now, what I love about this is, 
is it, the Bible does not tell us that if Jesus asks permission to get into the boat. Now, I want you guys to put yourself here. If you're a fisherman in the room or you go, just picture yourself, you are done with fishing for the day and you're cleaning up your boat and a preacher gets in your boat and starts preaching. If that's not awkward to you, I don't know how to help you see the awkwardness of this. Now, here's the thing. What we know is that the commentators say this was probably a great honor for Peter. So it probably wasn't as awkward as it would be in our day. Like if I came, you know, we're in Texas, I can get shot doing something like that, okay? And I know that fully. Uh, I, don't, I don't mess around by getting in other people's property, okay? I know some of you are packing right now. I'm kind of scared, all right, just a little bit. But I'm also kind of feel safe because if someone has to come after me, I know that one of you going to put them down, okay? I'm good for that. I know there's an usher in here right now with a pistol in his boot, and that's good. But in this time, it's a little bit different. We know that the commentators tell us that probably Peter was a little bit honored that Jesus would ask him, a rabbi would ask him to get into his boat, right? Like that, that was an honor for Peter. But nonetheless, what we do see is that, that Jesus doesn't ask permission to weave his way into, into Peter's life. He just kind of does so. He jumps into his boat, and then he tells Peter, push off a little bit from the land. So let's, let's get the boat out here. And, and the reason for this is because what we gain in this, this story is that the crowds are so... Uh, heavily pressing on Jesus that it's, it's becoming where he's having to wade into the water, right? Jesus has become so popular so early in his ministry that people are literally pressing him into the water. And so he says, Peter, will you help me out? I'm going to jump in the boat. Let's, let's speed boat out a little bit, and I'll teach from there to keep them at, at arm's length. He doesn't stop there, though, right? Like, I, I, find that, I find that the next thing that Jesus does is almost the borderline offensive thing. So like Peter may be honored because the rabbi's in his boat. But what he says next is, is almost seemingly offensive. Uh, I know there's some of you in the room that may be businessmen or women. Maybe you own your own business. Maybe you are an employee of a business. But nonetheless, we probably all have a trade or a trade that we're trying to be trained in. Um, something that we want to be considered a professional at. Something that we want to be considered respected for to know and have the knowledge of. And, and most, for most of that, most of us, that's our jobs, right? And so for Peter, his profession is fishing. For Jesus in, in Israel at this time, his profession is teaching. He's a rabbi. He is a man who knows the law. Peter's a man who knows the waters. Peter's a man who knows how to fish. Jesus is a man who knows how to teach. Jesus asked him, can I borrow your boat? That's honoring. The next thing Jesus says, though, is, hey, why don't you go out and put the nets out here? That's where you'll probably catch more fish. That's offensive. Why? Because Peter's a fisherman, Jesus is a teacher. That's why we see how Peter responds here is how many of you would respond if I, as a pastor, came to you and tried to tell you how to be a stockbroker. You'd say, stay in your lane. Like, listen, I liked your talk and everything on Sunday morning. Stay in your lane, all right? Or moms, if I showed up to your house and maybe some of you are, are stay-at-home moms and you're watching your children, and I said, you know, I just, I, I hate to say that, so I kind of want to critique how you're changing the diaper there. You probably look at me and say, stay in your lane, young man, all right? Let me handle this. I've got three, and I can change diapers with a foot, all right? That's how I do it. You know nothing of what I'm trying to do here. That's kind of what happens here with Peter. But, but recognize what, what Jesus says here to Peter and his response. Verse 4, he says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon, ans Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now that line is saying this. If I can't catch anything, how are you expecting to catch stuff? If I can't catch anything, how are you going to tell me, Rabbi, where I should let down my nets? But I love what Peter does here. He, he still says, but 
but at your word, I will let down the nets. And so Peter honors Jesus and he lets the nets down. I want, I want us to catch something. Don't miss the beginning of this story because it definitely sets the stage, but it's so much more. It's so much more. If you, if you could put your thumb in your, in, your, in your Bible right now and just turn with me to Acts chapter number 17. They should have it behind me as well, but Acts chapter number 17. I'm just going to read two quick verses, and, and for the sake of time, I apologize. I'm jumping into the middle of a sermon by Paul, and he's about to say something that I think speaks to this circumstance with Peter. Starting in verse 26, Paul, who is now preaching at the Areopagus to a group of Greeks, He's going to tell them about Jesus, but he has two major points about God's character and his attributes. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Paul's theology here includes a God of the universe who is wiring each and every one of our lives in such a way that we would have moments of meeting with God himself. God determines the minute things in our lives, like, for instance, what house you're going to live in or what neighborhood you're going to choose or what school district. Like many of you thought, I'm going to be a good parent. I'm going to get my kids in a good school district. And Paul says, no, 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 no. God has wired your lives in such a way that you'd be in the school district that you're in. And yes, you made meaningful decisions, but God has been weaving his way into your life through the minute decisions and then, and then even the bigger decisions of our lives, like when we would live, like who decided when we would live. In the year 2017, we would be here in, in this gym at this time. Can I tell you something? You and I didn't get to choose that. And some of you, you might want to say, well, my parents chose that. My parents decided that. But I will tell you, as, as, as a parent now who has adopted my child, that, that eight years ago my wife and I got married, my plan for how many children, when I would have my children, how many children I were going to have, all those things, has completely changed because guess what? I don't get to control when we have children. Some of you may have experienced this. You know who does control that? A God who is wiring all things for a singular purpose, namely our good and his glory. And so what we find here is that this is Peter's moment. He may not have known it when he went out and decided to go fishing, but when, he, when Peter went out to go fishing and he didn't catch anything, there was purpose behind it. When Peter went out that morning, early, some of you are hunters or fishermen, and so you get up at hours of the day that I just, I'm not, I'm barely Christian at that time. I don't understand why you do it, but you do it because you love it, right? Peter's been up all night toiling with his business partners, working hard because this is not just some fun hobby for him, but it's literally what put, what's puts food on the table, and puts money in his pocket. This is important for Peter. He's been working his tail off, and he catches nothing, and all of it is for the purposes that God might weave his way into his life for grace. And this is true of our lives as well, is it not? God is weaving moments together for the purpose of knowing him and experiencing his grace. Often the very circumstances that we bite back against are the experiences that God has woven together for the purpose of us knowing him, which, is, which far exceeds what we may consider a successful day. So point number one is that God weaves his way into our lives for the purposes of grace. Point number two, God uses circumstances of vulnerability to create trust in him. Now, this is where I think that the, the story's kind of comical, okay? And, and forgive me for thinking it's a little bit comical. I already thought it was comical because Jesus just commandeered a boat. But number two, verse number six, is really the funny part of the story. 
So finally, they let their nets down for a catch. Now, if you've read the Gospels at all, you kind of are already teed up for what's about to happen, right? Peter thinks Jesus is kind of silly. Jesus has just let your nets down. You already know what's coming here, but, but it's funny when it happens. When they had done this, verse 6, they enclosed a large number of fish, so much so that their nets were breaking, so they catch a lot of fish. That's a good thing, except it's like they celebrated for maybe 0.5 seconds until it started to get serious. Verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Peter recognizes that the, the catch of fish is not only great, it's dangerous. So it's like it's one thing when Jesus helps you go fishing, it's another thing when Jesus is about to ruin your whole business. It's like we caught a lot of fish, we could sell these, we could probably make a lot of money. It's like we came into a cash cow in 0.5 seconds, that turned into we're going to lose all the fish and our boats and my partner's boats. And Jesus is just the rabbi who decided to come out with them. I mean, you go from being happy that he came into the boat to like, why did I let this guy on my boat? In real quick time. Now, a side note here, I don't have time to expound on this, but notice how, how we, like Peter, often call for more ships when our boat is sinking rather than turning to the only person in the boat that can fix it. Just think on that for a second. How many times when physical circumstances in your life that you're taking on water and you're looking for more boats to help you out and you have refused to look to Jesus, the captain of the ship, the real captain of the ship, to help? Okay, I don't have time to continue on there. That was an aside. What happens here is that Jesus uses this physical danger of sinking in the middle of the ocean and losing his whole business to reveal to Peter his spiritual vulnerability through a physical example of personal power and strength, Jesus has now revealed to Peter just how sinful he is. And we're going to get to that in a second. One thing we have to catch from this text, if, and if we don't, I think uh, we're making a mistake, is unless we are compelled to cry out to God, as human beings, we most certainly will not cry out to God. Unless we are compelled by a gracious God to cry out, we, we typically want to do our own thing. This is the story of the Old Testament with the children of Israel, right? When they are enslaved, they cry out to God. God responds mightily. He redeems them, pulls them out of their situation, only for them to forget God and continue trying to do it their own way. The, the, the book of Judges is a great example of this. As they enter the promised land and God gives them great victory, the first thing that they do, the quote of Judges, is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They forget God. There's a, one of my favorite authors C.S. Lewis, he, he wrote a, a, a series of children's books I'm sure you're all familiar with, is, uh, you know, especially if you, you have little children, is um, Chronicles of Narnia. And, and in the sixth book, there's this little interaction that Aslan, the typology of Jesus, has with one of the, the little girls. There's this moment where a, the little girl Jill and Eustace, they are running away from danger. And as the danger impedes upon them more and more, they're, they're running away, they're getting scared, they keep running out of places to hide. And finally, where they have nowhere else to hide, they start to cry out, Aslan, Aslan, Aslan. And it says that the moment that they're about to get devoured, that they fall off of a cliff and Aslan scoops them up and saves them. And as they're having an interaction with Aslan, Jill says, I'm so glad I called out to you. And Aslan said to her, one of my favorite quotes of the book is, you would not have called out to me if I had not been first calling out to you. Aslan says, you wouldn't have called to me if I hadn't have first called to you. The Book of Common Prayer defines prayer like this. Prayer is responding to God by thoughts and deeds with or without words. Think about that for a second. 
Have you ever considered prayer is as a response to God or a petition to God? The Book of Common Prayer says it's a response to God. One analogy would be this, that we're not merely dialing God's number when we pray, but that God has constantly dialed our number and the phone is always ringing and when we pray, we pick it up for once. Think of it like that. You're not running into your prayer closet, picking up the phone, dialing God's number and hoping you don't get a busy signal. God instead has this ongoing ringing phone in your house and in your life and at times the ring is loud enough to where we'll pick up the phone and we'll answer it and commune with God and experience relationship and redemption and grace and all the things that we so desperately need. When Aslan says, I was calling to you first, he's saying all of the circumstances, I was narrowing you into a place that finally you'd call out to me that I might rescue you. See, Peter here thought he went out fishing one day. But Jesus is literally backing him into a corner until he'll finally cry out to him. Now that may seem mean to you. You might think, well, God's kind of a masochist a little bit, isn't he? Like just kind of backing you into a corner until you cry uncle. The most gracious thing that God can do to us and for us is to bring us to the end of ourselves that we might find joy in him and him alone. The most gracious thing God can do is bring us to a place where we stop relying on self for delight, self for satisfaction, self for hope, self for all things, and rely on Jesus alone for all of those things. And that's what Peter is experiencing here. Jesus graciously uses this moment of vulnerability to call out to Peter, to shock him into understanding, guess who's sitting in your boat right now? Because until this point, Peter still just thinks, it's a rabbi sitting in my boat. And the rabbi's kind of got an eye for fish. Kind of, kind of weird, but it worked. And Jesus wants him to know who's really sitting his boat. I, I want to take a, a little bit of time, and, and, and I, I want to I be faithful to, to my time limit here. Um, but I, I had a moment of meeting like this. And, and it didn't happen only once in my life, but there were a series of things that happened in my life that led me to a moment of meeting. Uh, I'll, I'll just use one as an example because it was really the initial thing that changed the trajectory of my family forever. And, and hopefully if we spend more time together, I know maybe I have a little bit of time next week too to tell you some more. But when I was 12 years old, uh, my father and I were involved in a car accident. We were on our way to meet with uh, my grandmother, and I was going to, um, believe it or not, this is pretty nerdy, I was going to play a junior high golf tournament. Um, and I was on my way with my father, and, and we were in a, a single cab pickup. We saw the rain up ahead. Uh, we pulled over into a little McDonald's, real healthy eating for a junior hire, got some breakfast, uh, got back into our car, uh, and, and as we saw the rain up ahead, we, we wanted to put, take all of the luggage uh, out of the back and put it in between us and our single cab because we didn't want to get, to get rained on. So I'm like, my golf clubs and everything, pull all that into the, to the vehicle, and guess what we forget to do? Put our seatbelts back on. Now, this is the time where seatbelts is not uh, maybe as, as big of a deal as there was no click it or ticket signs everywhere, okay? Like, uh, I mean, it, it was a little bit different, okay, world at that point. But none, nonetheless, we didn't put our seatbelts back on. And as we begin to drive, my father's truck uh, hydroplanes. And as it hydroplanes on the, on the rain, hydroplanes into the other lane. And as it went, goes into the other lane, um, there's no median on the Texas 6, or there used to be. Now there, there used to not be. Now there is. And so we went over across into the oncoming traffic. And if you've ever been on your way to College Station or A&M, then you know those are, those are a pretty three to four lane highways. They're pretty big, pretty, pretty busy. And there was a wrecker truck that was on its way to another wreck, 
And if you're familiar with, with the record trucks, then you know that they oftentimes speed to get to those places in order to kind of compete for the business. And so this record truck was going 80, 90 miles an hour and hits us uh, on my dad's side, knocks the bed off of my father's truck. I was ejected from the vehicle. It, it cut my eyelid off uh, as a child. I tore all the muscles in my, in my right leg. Um, it was a horrible accident, and my father was killed instantly. Um, so I, I, remember, I remember waking up and thinking, man, I, I have a horrible sunburn. I can't open my eyes. Well, the sunburn was road rash. My whole back was just gashed, gashed up completely, huge, big gaps in my back. I remember not being able to open my eyes and asking them, where's my dad? Where's my dad? Trying to ask what's going on. Just a, a really horrible time in my life. And uh, I had to go through surgeries, multiple surgeries, three, three different surgeries, actually, in order to reconstruct my eyelids so that I could just, you know, blink, uh, things like that. Um, and, and at that time, it was, it was really tragic for my family. Now, um, if you had asked me then, Court, do you think God's doing something here? First of all, my family was pretty irreligious, and I wouldn't have even known how to respond to that, probably. Number two, I probably would have gotten angry and, and thought, what are you talking about? Like, even in the, in the death of my father, like that's, that would, it would have angered me at that time. Um, but through that, my older brother uh, found his way to a, a, it was a non-denominational church, which is code for UPC um, at, at, in, our, in our neighborhood. It was like a Pentecostal church. And he walked into a youth meeting and gave his life to Christ. And when my brother gave his life to Christ, he encouraged my mother at that time to put me in a, in a teenage uh, or a, a Christian school. And so I, I was enrolled into a Christian school at 12 years old and, uh, and started to hear the gospel, just slowly but surely. And, and for whatever reason, I started really enjoying the Bible stories. Like I, I pretty much skipped school a lot. I was late a lot. There were a lot of issues, but, but I loved the Bible stories. Um, now, and I need to be fair with you and be honest with you here. Guess what else happened at this school? I got kicked out of that school. I got expelled from that school. So uh, my, my family was worried I was going to be a behavioral case. Spot on, okay? Got expelled from that school for stealing my teacher's car in eighth grade. I'll tell you that story later, okay? Um, and that is, a, that is God's honest truth. Um, however, those seeds of the gospel six years later where a harvest was reaped in my heart alone in my truck when there was a moment of meeting of grace that stemmed back from my father and I riding on a road, hydroplaning, deciding, not, deciding we're not going to put our seatbelts on or just forgetting, deciding to stop at that McDonald's. What if it had been one second earlier? What if it had been one second later? What if that, tr that record truck had just stopped and gotten a burrito and not decided to be speeding? All of these questions, but it had to have happened that way in order for my brother to walk in and meander in his grief into that Pentecostal church incognito and come to know Christ that my whole family now, I got to baptize my sister and my whole immediate family knows Jesus. Right? It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible, but I'll tell you what's not incredible is when you're grieving at the funeral, you don't see that. Some of you right now are in moments of vulnerability and you don't see that. You don't see the other side. And maybe you can believe it or hope for it, but ultimately you're not just dwelling in that ability to look back like I am right now. But God gives us hope because he gives us stories like Peter and shows us that in the moments of most vulnerability and even suffering, that God is using that for his glory to extend grace to us. My last point here, point three, is that God reveals sin in order to forgive us and make us new. You see, the climax of the story here is Peter's response to Jesus as he shows his miraculous power. 
in verse number eight, it says Simon, Simon Peter sees that the boats are sinking. And he falls down at Jesus' knees and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now for us, that might seem, no, man, Jesus is my homeboy. Come on, he's not going to fall. Why do you want him to leave? He's the, he's the good guy. But this is really par for the course for, for anyone in the Bible who comes face to face with God and his glory. I'll give you a few examples briefly. Moses and the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, when God's glory cloud comes down and Moses goes to intercede for the people, the children of Israel put their heads in the sand and say, send God away, Moses. We don't want to hear anymore because he terrifies us. You go and talk with God. Another story is Isaiah chapter 6. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and I am a man of unclean lips. I despise myself. Immediately when Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he recognized his unholiness. I am a man of unclean lips and I live in a people of unclean lips. Job, whenever he interacted with God at the end of Job, if you ever read that book, then you know what I'm talking about. He interacts with God and God asks him a series of rhetorical questions. And when God asks rhetorical questions, they're not meant for you to answer. Job's response is, I have heard of you with my ears, but now I've seen you with my eyes and and I despise myself. You see, this, this idea from Peter when he's confronted is really, really par for the course for anyone who's been confronted with God's majesty. They're terrified because of the holiness of God. And I was listening to some of the sermons past that Casey had been walking you guys through the book of Mark. And, and when he talked about the transfiguration, he talked about how Peter said, we'll build three tabernacles for you, Jesus, and Moses and Elijah. And those tabernacles, when I first read that, I thought that's almost ridiculous. Why is Peter ever even talking? Everything he says makes no sense. But then Casey pointed out really something that I had never even considered, which was this was a, a, a very common Jewish idea that if God's going to come down like we just saw in you, Jesus, we need something to mediate. We need a tabernacle to mediate your presence from the people. And so let's build tabernacles because that's too much glory for us to, to handle. And that's really what Peter's saying here whenever he realizes that God in the flesh is in the boat with him, the man who commands the fish to get into the nets. He says, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. You need to get out of the boat. I need some distance between you and me. Now, this is why I think it's kind of comical is guess where he's at? The middle of the water. Where does Jesus bring Peter? In a tiny boat, in the middle of the water, the boat's sinking, and he reveals himself to Peter. There is only one choice to be made. Even if he says, Jesus, I need you to leave, Where's Jesus going to go? I mean, Jesus can't walk on water. That's fair. But Peter can't run. We know what happens when Peter tries to walk on the water without Jesus' help. So Peter's literally caught in a boat with Jesus, a moment of meeting where he has to grapple with not only the person and work of Christ, but his own sin. And he tries to squirm a little bit here. My two-year-old Jonas, he, uh, he is a squirmer. And what I mean by that, and if you're a parent in the room, then you kind of get this. Like, anytime I want to do something good for the kid, he wants to squirm out of it. It's like, let me dress you. No. Like, let me try to put your shirt on. And he's kind of like, like he wants to do it himself. He kind of like pulls and tweaks around and does his thing, and then he ends up looking like a goon, so I fix it, you know. He's a squirmer. Another thing is when I try to discipline him, he's a squirmer. So, like, I want him to look me in the eyes. And I walk around by his little cheeks, and I'll say, look me in the eyes. And he'll, like, he'll have his face torn, but he, like, turns his eyes this way. And so then I'll, like, try to meet his eyes, and he'll turn his eyes this way. He's a squirmer. He doesn't want 
to look me in the eyes. Now, here's the thing. I want to discipline him so that I can forgive him and extend him grace. I want to tell him this is what you did wrong, but dad loves you. I forgive you. It's okay. But he just wants to divert his eyes. Peter is the same way here. He sees the holiness of God, and therefore, he is rightly terrified. He wants to squirm away from the grip of grace, but Jesus wants to do something different. He says, fear not. Friends, this morning, our greatest fear, many of us, is to be rejected. To have a person that we care about or a group of people that we care about reject us. That could even keep you up at night, maybe. The reason I wrote a book about social media was much about this. Many of us, we use our social media accounts in order to ensure that we're not rejected by the world. As long as we can get a few likes a day, a few likes a week, people will acknowledge that they care about us, that we exist in this world and we have purpose, then that will get us going for one more day. But I would say the deepest fear of all of our souls is that one day we would stand before God in eternity and forever be shut out. The eternal seclusion, the eternal ignoring, the eternal destruction, that we would stand before God and he would shut the door. And if we're honest with ourselves and just reading the Bible, he'd be just to do it, wouldn't he? But in Christ, we have God's ultimate welcome. Jesus' response to Peter is so important because it's for us this morning. It is don't be afraid. Now, here's the thing. He didn't say, Peter, you have nothing to be afraid of. He said, don't be afraid. Because although I am powerful and although I could squash you like a bug, although I can command the fish and I most certainly can command you to be gone, I use my power for you and not against you. This is why David says in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If you've ever been a child in a disciplinary home, you know that when dad gets the belt, that's not comforting, right? When dad gets the switch, that's not comforting. So why would David say that the shepherd's rod and staff comforts him? Answer, because the rod and the staff is used to fend off the wolves. It's used to care for the sheep. Jesus takes the chastisement that we deserve on himself so that he can use and wield the power of the Father for our good. He takes the chastisement that we, you and I deserve so that every time we see God's power, we can be sure it's used for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Every time God's power is used and his sovereignty is used in our lives in ways that seem dark, you can be rest assured, my friends, that will be leveraged for grace. In closing, verse 11, it says, when they brought their boats to the land, they left everything and they followed him. And so, to bring us back to Bryant's sermon last week, Christ's calling is not to some manageable religiosity. It's a call to self-abandonment. It's a call to relinquish your own grip on your own life and give in to the grip of grace. When I ask myself, why is it I don't want to join God on his missionary endeavor in the world? Why is it that whenever Bryant laid that whole story out, I thought, why am I not engaging in that? And I think the answer is because many of us, we, we lose sight, wonder, and awe of the grace of God every day in our lives, and therefore we are poor messengers of grace because the most missional people will always be those who have not lost their wonder of the gospel. Let me prove it to you. When you go watch a good movie, guess what you do? You tell other people about it. 
you immediately go and say, man, you got to watch this movie. This movie was awesome. And then you start going through it, and then you ruin the movie for everybody. And everybody's like, dude, come on. And you're like, sorry, I don't want to ruin the plot, but before the end of it, I don't even want to watch the movie anymore. I'm disgusted by you, okay? Because you've already overdone it. Why? Because you delighted in it. And delight is the greatest motivator for mission. And we gain delight by the grace of God, the majesty of God. We see our own sin, and we see a gracious Savior who embraces us in the boat, who has literally placed us, almost cornered us into his grace. This morning, the most important question for some of you is, have you been gripped by grace? I, I, every time I, I preach, and even at Providence at, at home, I say this. I say, I'm not naive enough to believe that, that there might not be someone in, this, in here this morning, and prayerfully there is, that just kind of skeptical about Christ at all. And so you're not even sure why you're here. Maybe it was, you, you heard they're giving away free Arctic, you know, cups. You're like, that sounds cool, 20 bucks, I'll do that. And so you came, maybe it's the free coffee. I don't know, what, what, whatever it may be. And the biggest question for you this morning is have you been gripped by grace because this morning you are not here because of the Arctic Cup, but because there's a God who's weaving your life together that you might experience Jesus Christ. All of his grace, all of his majesty, all of his love. And every single moment of your life has led to this critical moment. And then for others of us, the greatest question that we can ask is, have you become numb to the true staggering nature of God's great love for you? Is it possible that like the church at Ephesus, you lost your first love? That precious love that comes from being gripped by the grace of God. I'm talking about that love that, that you didn't care so much about knowing all the fine details of theology. You just knew God loved you in Christ. That simple love when you, were, when you just knew that you knew that you knew that you were forgiven by Jesus because of what he did on the cross and there was nothing you could do that would separate you from that love. For, for me, it was like that simple love that maybe like turn on Christian music I would never listen to and sing it loudly. That was what it was for me. Like I remember I would listen to Christian, I would be like blaring at the time. That was not the music I listened to. And I would just blare with my windows down and stuff, you know, like looking awkward. I didn't really, and, and it was this love that had motivated that. I, I always use the analogy that it reminded me when I first fell in love with my wife that I would do weird things. Like I started writing poetry. Like, listen to, you know, listen to old dashboard confessionals. You know, like I started listening to weird music, you know, emo music. My hair like only went down and to one side, you know, like I, I, I was in love. I was, I was absolutely changed by my love for this woman. And, and then there was God's love for me. Does it motivate you this morning? Here's, here's my, my plea for you is if, if you're like, yeah, you know what, Court, that, that is me, but what, what do I do? Ask him this morning, God, remind me. Remind me of your grace. Remind me of where I was when you found me. When we sing, come now, fountain, it says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. When we sing that, is there an awe in our soul? That he sought after me when I was lost. Because that's what motivates us to join God on his great mission.